Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. Well, if it ain't pretty little Laura Ingalls, the cutest girl in Plum Creek. Howdy, Amos Pike. What's new? Well, I reckon we may have a problem with locusts eating the wheat crop, and a train pulled out of the station today and left the caboose plum behind. Also, there's a new music teacher in town from way back east. So I heard. I reckon I might take up playing the triangle if he'll teach me. But right now I'm helping a crippled girl with her leaf collection for school, and then I'm going to walk over to the Olisons to visit my old horse, Bunny, who my pa had to sell when our farm had troubles. You might be interested to know them rich Olisons got the first ever newfangled telephone lines in Walnut Creek. Who the ding-dong are they going to call? Them phone lines are just the beginning of a reversion to an absolute central state perched on top of an older restrictive web of feudal land monopolies and urban guild controls and restrictions. I can't rightly join you there, Laura. Reckon I do believe the state inherently violates personal autonomy. Anarchism, which rejects the state, is the only political doctrine consistent with autonomy in which the individual alone is the judge of his moral constraints. I'll give you this much, Amos Pike. For the realization of free markets, we have to go back to the actions or inaction of individuals. Groups or collectives cannot act except through the actions of individual members. You know what? It's a miracle from the dear Lord that so much libertarian economic theory can reside in the head of one purty little girl. But I've got a constipated heifer to tend to back home. That ain't no way to talk about Mrs. Pike. <laughs> no, but it does give me some comfort. I've got to get back to and help an unpopular boy run for school president. Burl Ives guest stars as Sam, the nearly blind man. I reckon you can listen to these people talk about me. And now he plays the horse that kicks Mary in the stomach, Colin McEnroe. It's not strictly accurate. I played one half of the horse that kicked Mary in the stomach. Uh, all right. So we are talking about a Little House on the Prairie today. And uh, if that... Um, intro is even more baffling to you than most of our intros. It's because one of the things we're going to be talking about is how the fiction of Laura Ingalls Wilder was infused, not by her, but by her daughter, uh, occasionally with heavy doses of libertarian thought. We're going to tell you stories that stretch or at least yo-yo back and forth between Mansfield, Missouri and Danbury, Connecticut, and sweep uh, along with them uh, figures like uh, Ayn Rand, even the Koch brothers, William F. Buckley. It's a really interesting story that you very easily could have digested all of the uh, Laura Ingalls Wilder's bo books in the TV series without having any clue about. It's also a we're also going to tell you stories about people who are so swept up uh, in the ethos uh, of self-reliance uh, and old ways that they become what are known as bonnet heads. Uh, they are such big fans of the little house that they try to live uh, as the people in the little house do. 
Um, and we'll also tell you about uh, uh, this is a lot we're telling you. We're also going to tell you about sort of a story about anxiety, the anxiety of creation. Uh, who really created the fiction that is L- the Little House on the Prairie? Uh, you were told one story, but there's another story to be told. Christine Woodside is here in studio with me. She's author of Libertarians on the Prairie, Laura Ingalls Wilder, Rose Wilder Lane, and the Making of the Little House Books. Uh, joining us by phone is Wendy McClure, writer, children's book editor, uh, and the author of The Wilder Life, My Adventures in the Lost World of Little House on the Prairie. A little bit later, we'll be talking to William Anderson, chief biographer of Laura Ingalls Wilder and the author of The Selected Letters of Laura Ingalls Wilder. Um, so, um, first of all, uh, Christine Woodside, welcome to our studios. And maybe, I have to say that I'm the guy parachuting in here. I don't, I never really had a, much of a relationship with either the TV series or the books. I just somehow or other uh, fell into some kind of crevasse uh, and missed the whole thing. So, um, you know, in a nutshell, what's the story that people uh, read or, or watched on television? What is that a story of? It's a story of the simple life. It's a story of optimism amid hardship. It's a story of families drawing together and uh, making do with what they have. And that is really a quintessential American story that we're all very drawn to. And it's the story of this family that well, I mean, in real life, they really kind of wandered around on kind of what remained of the American frontier, right? These are uh, this is a an itinerant family that what they had about six or seven relocations. That's right. They they started in Wisconsin and they uh, wandered around the Upper Midwest for uh, about a decade before finally settling in what became South Dakota. And if you look on a map, they didn't actually go all that far, but at that time, it took you a long time because they were traveling these tiny wagons that. We're really not even as wide as this table where we're sitting. Um, and it's a story also that attracts a certain kind of young person. Um, at least two of the guests on the show, including you, had the experience of being kind of rebuffed when you tried to insert yourself into the story in some way, right? You were 17 and you decided That's you were right. going to explain that, tell that story. Yes, I, I had read all the Little House books and I was fascinated with the story. And I knew that Laura Ingalls Wilder's farm in Missouri was open to the public. So at age 17, without telling my parents, I wrote a letter to the curator and asked her for a job. I said I would do anything. And she turned me down. She wrote me a very brusque letter, and um, it just didn't it didn't add up for me how uh, unfriendly she was being. It didn't match my idea of Laura Ingalls Wilder, the character, who at that point had been dead for not quite 20 years. Uh, well, when we get to uh, Bill Anderson, uh, he can probably out-brusque you uh, with, with his, his rebuffery by uh, Mary herself. So, um, Wendy, I want to um, add you to this conversation. So uh, one thing you can do is uh, write a letter to see if you can be some kind of volunteer docent or sweeper-upper uh, at one at one of the memorial sites. The other thing you can do is basically try to become the books as much as possible. You got... I don't, is obsessed an unfair word? You really wanted to uh, have some of these very frontier, basic, self-reliant experiences. That's right. I became, um, I guess, re-obsessed with the books. I loved them as a as a child. And then I didn't reread the books for a very long time, for about 30 years. And then when I finally returned to them, um, just sort of the old 
the old obsession came back and um, and I was really I was really surprised by uh, how great the books were and I was just instantly struck with that sort of feeling of wanting to sort of do things from the books um, you know um, part of it was was just the the experiences um, I wanted to, to you know try my hand at cooking things from the books um, I wanted to you know sort of see what it was like to you know ride in a wagon um, and I also became really um, uh, fascinated with the idea of visiting all the places um, where the Ingalls family lived. And as we said before, a lot of those places are now museums. As a kid, I didn't really know that going going to those places um, was possible, but um, that was that was definitely one thing I did. Um, and then when I wasn't traveling, I was doing things like, um, you know, churning butter, um, making the kind of bread that uh, the, the family makes uh, during the long winter where they have to grind seed wheat in a coffee grinder. Um, so, um, and actually, I think this is actually sort of a common experience among a lot of uh, Little House uh, fans. Um, the, there is a great uh, cookbook that is uh, called the Little House Cookbook, and uh, the author Barbara Walker um, was uh, reading the books for um, to her kids, and she sort of realized that the, that the books. I think this is her phrase. She said they compel participation, um, and so based on that, she researched all the uh, all the recipes in um, the several books, and um, and came up with uh, sort of modern day recipes. This is sort of um, a precursor. A lot of stuff. Yeah, this is sort of a precursor to the sort of Brooklyn hipsters who uh, want to live the artisanal life and take four years to make one pickle. Uh, you <laughs> were kind of doing this before it was cool, or at least it was cool in a very different way. Um, we have so much to cover. Uh, I'm going to get Christine uh, and Wendy to tell us a little bit more of the story of the creation of these books. So these books, uh, Chris, were Laura Ingalls Wilder's life, but they they were. She had a way of telling her story that might not have led to the kind of best-selling popularity that these books enjoyed. She saw this uh, as a much more stoic American story, right? That's right. In, in, around the time that the stock market crashed, Rose Wilder Lane, Laura's daughter, was a famous writer living back at the farm uh, with, with her parents. And she suggested that Laura write down her life story. And then they began this sort of debate. Laura would say... We never showed emotion. We were stoic. We, there was this stiff upper lip kind of thing uh, that we did. We we did not feel uh, joy. It was not that was not the way we were. I've been trying to explain this to you. She would say sometimes in letters, and and Rose would uh, ignore that. Uh, um, it, and you know the 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 short version of the story is that Laura wrote out her memoir. They tried to sell it to a magazine. They couldn't. And then Rose began taking pieces out of the memoir. She she took Little House in the Big Woods, the first book, just right out of it, took it to New York, rewrote it, uh, called it something else, and sold it before Laura even knew what was going on. And she put a lot of happiness and optimism and family joy into the rewriting. And, and so, yeah, so it's a little bit more um, the kind of thing that, that people might gravitate a little bit toward, towards as opposed to, well, things happen to you and sometimes those things are, are pretty grim and, and horrible right. and you have to put up with that and it's too bad. Um, and, and so um, – and this was all done 
you know, for a long time, I mean, th- th- this kind of collaboration, the raw material of Laura being shaped and polished in- into a, maybe a more digestible digestible form by her daughter, this was all done kind of sub, ro- sub rosa for a long time. As far as the world knows, knew it was just ingesting pure Laura Ingalls Wilder, right? Yeah, it was it was a secret forever. They took the secret to their graves. They never talked about it. They didn't. There, there's no letter to anybody um, saying acknowledging that Rose was the secret a collaborator with her mother it was it was definitely not discussed and then when they died we had sets of papers in two houses one in Connecticut in Rose's house and one in Missouri in Laura's house and it took a long time to bring those papers together and they're not really entirely brought together yet so, Wendy, as somebody who was a big enough fan to want to do these things and to secure on your own initiative a pig bladder uh, for whatever purpose, I mean, there's a way in which there's a veneration of this story as a true story uh, and a, a veneration of Laura Ingalls Wilder as a certain kind of child who became a certain kind of adult. And then when you as a fan or the fans you've encountered, encountered you've really uh, traveled and dwelled among the most hardcore uh, Little House fans that there could be. When this other stuff comes up, well, it's not exactly her story, and Rose kind of made it more palatable. I mean, does that wreck anything for you, or does it wreck anything for some of the hardcore fans? Not for me. Whoop. <laughs> uh, see, I think the butter churn actually is now hooked up to the phone a little bit, and we're going to sort of... I'll ask you the same question, Chris, while we work on uh, Wendy's phone. I mean, what happens when people find out about this stuff? Um, well, it's been a long process of um, acceptance by the fans, I would say. Uh, when you when a fan like myself first hears this stuff, it, and uh, and it was known for you know certain people were studying it as late as early as the late seventies, but so it's met with denial. This can't be true. There there, there was a lot of this can't be true. This is overemphasized, and and there still is debate. You know, and and that's a fair thing. Pe- some people think I have gone a little too far. In my analysis, and I invite anyone to, you know, uh, look at all the evidence and, and maybe come up with their own argument. But basically, it, it, it was like having a bubble burst. It's very it's been a painful thing for people to understand that Laura, the character and Laura, the real woman, were not the same one and the same. Right. And Wendy, I think your phone connection is uh, cleared up here. But um, okay. the, so it's a it's a multiple there are multiple twists in this story. One of the twists is, okay, so this has been sanded and polished by the, the second generation. But also, it's a, a somewhat fractious story. These aren't two women, mother and daughter, who love and trust one another implicitly 100%. They have this rather painful uh, relationship that seems not entirely based on trust and mutual respect. So I don't know. As you tr- travel among the, the people who are real, you know, dyed-in-the-wool uh, bonnet heads, to use the expression, what's the reaction? to that kind of disclosure? I think there is some occasional hostility towards Rose, to be sure. Um, I think partly because, you know, uh, just as Christine said, the idea that she worked on the books and maybe really sort of uh, played a large part in making them what they are, and, you know, and I agree she did, um, that, you know, that's that's hard for people to take, and I think it's, it's definitely a process for people to, to accept that. Um, I think the other thing is is that Rose sort of doesn't fit the the, the ideal that they have of, of Laura the character. I mean, Rose was um, a very different kind of person. She was, um, she was sort of outspoken. Um, a lot of people sort of view her as being sort of bitter where Laura was sweet um, 
And I think another thing is as well is I think all the the stuff that she left um, in her letters and her journal, journals and everything that she did, you know, sort of leave as documentation about her involvement with Little House books doesn't really show her engagement with the stories. And I don't think she ever was really honest, you know, at least in her own journal or her own writing about the level to which she she really maybe put um, – you know, something of herself in those stories, and I believe that she did. Uh, we're going to take a little break. When we come back, we'll talk about one of those aspects of Daughter Rose's self that winds its way into the book, uh, books and then begins to infuse Rose Wilder Lane's later life. So we are talking about the uh, legacy of Laura Ingalls Wilder and her daughter, Rose Wilder Lane. Uh, We're talking with two people who have written variously about it. Uh, Christine Woodside is in studio with me, author of Libertarians on the Prairie, Laura Ingalls Wilder, Rose Wilder Lane, and the Making of the Little House Books. Wendy McClure is joining us by phone, writer, children's book editor, and the author of The Wilder Life, My Adventures in the Lost World of Little House on the Prairie. So... We've got to sort of uh, talk about the libertarian in the room. Uh, And so, uh, Christine Woodside, there's sort of a libertarian subtext to any story of American self-reliance. You're out there. There's really nobody around to help you. You're homesteading. You're doing all this stuff. So that's right there in the text. But uh, as Rose Wilder Lane becomes an adult with her own thoughts and has her own reactions to things like Roosevelt's New Deal and stuff like that, um, she starts to embrace very specific philosophies, which I guess she begins subtly— uh, for the most part, inserting into the books? Yeah, she was inserting those ideas in the books as early as the second book, uh, the one called Farmer Boy, which is about the, her father, Almanzo Wilder. And in Farmer Boy, you find a number of scenes. Um, and, and let me just say, I think Rose did not say to herself, I'm going to put libertarian, well, that word yeah. wasn't even used then. I'm going to do this. But I think it was just who she was. She was saying, we got to make this uh, story come alive. And and so Farmer Boy is full of moments where the young farmer, uh, the little boy who's like eight in the story, is saying, I want to be free and independent. That's a phrase you see all the time in the Little House books, free and independent, no one telling me what to do. If we leave people to their own goals and work ethic, everything's going to work out. And that was a pure, purely um, 1930s idea, really, uh, that that was coming along during that horrible time where they were living, where the Great Depression had started, Franklin Roosevelt was starting the New Deal. Uh, the government was coming in and telling them not to grow very much on their farm. Uh, Almanzo Wilder, the old man now, went out with his shotgun to meet someone from the government uh, who was telling him not to not to plant things. So uh, you you found it right right early on, and and they show these ideas show up a lot in the last four books, especially when she was really deep into this um, uh, idea that we needed to shrink the size of government and we needed to get back to the basics of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. 
And in her own life, she gradually becomes a pretty major figure in these kinds of movements, uh, often grouped with uh, Ayn Rand, who I don't think she had that much direct contact with, uh, as and Isabel Patterson, as the three women really, uh, who were the mothers who birthed the libertarian movement. Yes. Uh, this is a story that also encompasses all, all kinds of other conservative figures and extensive correspondence, I guess, with William F. Buckley. I mean, rather than a shotgun, Rose starts to use pen, paper, and typewriter to really pursue a lot of these ideas in a much more formal and political way. Oh, absolutely. It started as um, anti-communism. Uh, she and the other two women were very anti what was going on in Russia uh, in the in the late twenties and thirties, and they they were they were frightened for what what that meant uh, to them. Anything where the government told people what to do, it was going to be socialism or communism, and that was just it, the fear that they had cannot be overstated, I would say. Um, and what was the rest of your question? Uh, I forget what the rest of question You're doing a very good job. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm assuming that, for example, yeah. uh, were they to, were, were Rose and uh, some of her compatriots uh, to uh, have lived long enough to see Melissa uh, Gilbert incarnate Laura Ingalls Wilder and then see Melissa Gilbert run as a Democrat for Congress in the current election cycle. She had to drop out because of disc and back problems, I guess. Right. They would have been really troubled by that, right? Well, I mean, we, yeah, we could also say that they would not have liked the television show, I would guess. Um, but Rose... When when she was working on the last of the Little House books in the early 40s, she was also writing this manifesto book that she called The Discovery of Freedom. Um, and it's a, a, a sort of a rambling, wide-ranging look at, at, at the sweep of history and concluding that um, only in the United States do we have freedom to be individuals and, and um, you know, make our own destinies. It, it's a little bit of a rant, that book, but it is called the, sort of the Bible that got the libertarian movement started. And the other thing that she was doing at the same time, which is kind of mind-blowing, is she, she got connected with an African-American newspaper that had a very wide circulation called the Pittsburgh Courier. And the Pittsburgh Courier editorial board and their readers were very skeptical of what Franklin Roosevelt was doing with the New Deal and so they and Rose really sort of joined forces. And Rose had a column in a black paper called Rose Wilder Lane Says. And she really had not had much uh, to do with African Americans. Uh, um, but, but in there, there she was able to every week hone her ideas of limited government down into columns of like 500 words. Um, so, uh, by the way, there just are really fascinating parallels. We don't have time to go into them uh, between this story and that of Harold Gray, the guy who created Little Orphan Annie, who during the Depression and, and, its, and its aftermath became a loather of the New Deal and a hater of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And, you know, similar to these books, you can kind of engage with the material any way you want. Obviously, Walt Disney was like this really horrible person and a bigot and an anti-Semite and all kinds of other things, too. That doesn't really wreck Mickey Mouse. Um, yeah, let me just add that the, uh, the there's a name of a chapter in the fourth book um, on the banks of Plum Creek that is taken right out of Little Orphan Annie mm. called The Darkest Hours Just Before Dawn. And I am sure that Rose Wilder Lane really liked that story. Oh, I'm sure, too. So, Wendy, one of the things that you've done is to move about, as we said, among contemporary fans, but specifically people who are trying to fashion lives that in some way resemble those uh, of the people that we read about uh, when we read about the Ingalls family. Um, so tell us about a few of those. Tell us about, for example, I mean, Clover Meadow Farm. G give us a sketch okay. of that. 
Well, that was a, a trip that I took to. Um, it's a um, it was a farm in um, Illinois, and um, and that was just. Um, a, a farm, it's kind of a heritage farm uh, run by a really nice couple who um, just just kind of as a hobby, or maybe a little more than a hobby, had a fascination with using things like draft horses to plow and um, breeding, um, you know, heritage uh, breed farm animals and um, uh, forging their, you know, their own tools and, you know, making cheese and you know, making butter and making soap, and you know, learning all those all those skills. And um, I think the woman, you know, she sells things through the through the website. Um, I think he sells his his you know hand forged tools as well. And they um, have a um, like a homesteading weekend that they they do every year. And so they said, you know, like minded people come. And so some of it is, was about just sort of learning these hands on skills. And so um, my husband and I, or my um, I got this, my fiance at the time, we decided to go and see what it was all about. And it was really interesting um, because you know there were people. It was a huge range of you know people who were sort of just doing this for for a hobby. They were just sort of you know. Um, kind of hands-on historians, and they just wanted to sort of, you know, do kind of a living history thing, um, working with spinning wheels, things like that. And then other folks were, you know, kind of felt like they were preparing for something. Um, There was a group um, that came from a church uh, up in Wisconsin, and they were um, talking about, you know, they kept on saying, like, it's really good to learn these skills for, you know, when everything happens. <laughs> and so finally I sort of had to be like, well, well, you know, what are you talking about? And um, so uh, these folks were, you know, really, you know, kind of just into, you know, end times uh, preparation. And they, they felt that, um, you know, some of them, not all of them were familiar with the Little House books, so I wouldn't call them, I wouldn't call them bonnet heads. Bonnet heads are actually just fans of the Little House books. But, um, but you know, there were a lot of things, especially in Little House in the Big Woods, um, uh, the the first book in the Little House series that would really be compatible with that sort of worldview, um, and it was it was definitely interesting to see that. Um, and we only have a, a minute or two before break here, uh, Chris. But I mean, in general, setting doomsday cults aside, um, th- this story is also very attractive to evangelical Christians in general, right? Yes, uh, um, Christian groups and um, organized groups of homeschooling parents have really taken the books to heart, and I think it has to do with the idea of hard work equals um, a feeling of satisfaction and belonging. Uh, and, and as Wendy must have learned during her weekend on that farm, the, the homesteading life is very, very difficult. It's backbreaking. It's discouraging. It's cold. It's muddy. It's, it's a scary, and you don't have any money. Um, so, but but yes, it is absolutely uh, a story that gives hope uh, and inspires those kinds of groups. There's a, a hilarious, if, if you find these things hilarious, bit of parallelism or reverse parallelism in Chris's book. Uh, there's at one point, Laura Ingalls Wilder is kind of figuratively anyway, fat and happy off the proceeds of these books. And meanwhile, Rose is living in Danbury, and partly because she's rejected everything about the New Deal and rejected rationing from during World War II or like ration coupons. She's actually living uh, this, you know, almost uh, subsistence lifestyle uh, and while her mom is, uh, you know, enjoying the 
the royalties. Anyway. Reversal yeah, in the end of role. life. That's right. Uh, so we're, we're going to take a little break here. We're going to come back. And during that break, people are going to ask you to support this kind of programming. Who else would do an entire show on the uh, fractious relationship between Laura Ingalls Wilder uh, and her libertarian daughter? Uh, probably nobody. Uh, so if you like that kind of thing, if that's one of the reasons you're listening right now, for just a few minutes, some people are going to talk to you. And if you would call in and make a pledge, it does redound to our great credit that you supported us during our time slot, if you get what I'm saying. If you liked this show, you'll really enjoy one we're working on right now about how Winnie the Pooh books are a thinly veiled allegory for the Austrian school of economic thought. Today's show was produced by Betsy Ingalls Kaplan and Nate Kion Wolf. Greg Hill appeared in the intro, and our interns are Rusty Minnie and Almanzo Fisher. The part of Bill Curry was played by Melissa Gilbert. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or root around in our archives at wnpr.org slash Colin. On tomorrow's show, a rapid reaction to the third debate. And now. Back to Colin. Yeah, we had a different idea for tomorrow, and then we thought, you know, people are going to want to talk after tonight in Vegas, baby. Vegas. Uh, you couldn't script this better, the, the third uh, debate taking place in Vegas. All right, so uh, today we're talking about somebody who uh, did not go to Vegas, and that would be uh, Laura Ingalls Wilder, and for that matter, uh, Rose Wilder Lane, although Rose was a more modern woman, I guess. Maybe she did go to Vegas. Uh, with us are Christine Woodside, uh, author of Libertarians on the Prairie, Laura Ingalls Wilder, Rose Wilder Lane, and the Making of the Little House Books. Wendy McClure, uh, author of The Wilder Life, My Adventures in the Lost World of Little House on the Prairie. Uh, and joining us in just a second, William Andrew. Anderson, biographer of Laura Ingalls Wilder and the author of the Selected Letters of Laura Ingalls Wilder. We're going to talk a lot in this segment about stuff that went down in Danbury, Connecticut. Not a place you necessarily intuit as uh, having a strong connection to the Little House on the Prairie books. There's not much of a prairie in Danbury, but uh, you'd be surprised. Before we get to that, though, I, I want to talk just briefly about uh, places where there really are uh, prairies and that uh, uh, both Christine Woodside and Wendy McClure kind of did the grand tour of all the various museums. And so, Wendy McClure, maybe you can just tell us a little bit about the so-called Walnut Grove Museum. This is one that you really liked a lot, right? Uh, yeah, Walnut Grove is in Minnesota, and it is where the book On the Banks of Plum Creek took place. So it's where the um, Ingalls family lived in a dugout house um, right by the creek, and then later built a house of their own. And um, it was never named as Walnut Grove in the books, so you really sort of had to um, dig it you know, before the TV show for um, information about where that town actually was. But, of course, when the TV show came out, the, uh, you know, the family was, uh, you know, shown as actually living in Walnut Grove. That was the name of the show. And um, there's... I, there's some great stories about uh, the town of Walnut Grove having to suddenly put together a tourist plan in something like a matter of weeks back in 1974 when the show debuted because suddenly people were sort of descending on the town. And, in fact, the family that currently lived on the land where the Ingalls family dugout was, people. there's a story that people were – uh, actually coming in through the windows of that house thinking it was the Ingalls family house. <laughs> and uh, so it was, um, you know, they definitely had to, you know, uh, um, you know, get a plan in order. 
And now they're um, in the summertime, um, Walnut Grove, and as well as a lot of the other uh, places uh, like the Smet, South Dakota, um, they have uh, summer festivals, and they also have pageants where they uh, perform. Locals will perform a, uh, you know, one of the books, and they'll do a great outdoor show. Um, the Walnut Grove one is really, it's really pretty impressive. It's got pyrotechnics, and it's got live animals on stage, and rotating sets, and um, so that it's it's a lot of fun. And there's a there's a festival in the summer, and um, so it's really kind of just a um, kind of a great experience to to go to these places. Um, what's interesting about them is that there's there's no you know they're really off the beaten path, and so there's sort of no chance that there's going to be a mall going up you know near these places anytime soon. So you really get a chance to you know you see there's tourist stuff there certainly, but you still really get to see the land and and the prairie landscape much as it was in the books. Um, just one little weird detail is that in Wal- Walnut Grove, there are a lot of people from the Hmong uh, tribe, uh, uh, an ethnicity from Southeast Asia that encompasses uh, Laos and Thailand and Vietnam. And, and Wendy, I guess they were sort of attracted by just how nice everything seemed in those little house books. There's a story that one of the first families to move there, that uh, they had moved to Minneapolis and found that it, there was you know too much urban violence and the daughter of the family said well here's this town in minnesota you know they're on this tv show the people there seem really nice <laughs> so i don't know how true that story is but i really like it as as kind of like an origin story and um so now when you go to the um the Wanak grove family festival you can get uh sesame balls you can get bubble tea um <laughs> it's you know there's sort of this surprising pocket of diversity um right there in uh, this town in the middle of minnesota um and and you know there's there's a considerable population now and i think they that sort of population influx helped keep the schools open as well um and it it kind of played out it feels to me kind of like an episode of one of the tv shows <laughs> you know one of the tv show episodes yeah. where you know um you know there's you know it, outsiders, but then they, they come to you know learn to accept them. Right. Yeah. So Laura would have stuck up for one of the uh, Haman right. kids at the school. So uh, Wendy McClure, so great to talk to you, author of The Wilder Life, My Adventures in the Lost World of Little House on the Prairie. Thanks so much for being with us today. Uh, thank you for having me, Colin. All right. So we still got Christine uh, Woodside here, and we are uh, going to add William Anderson, uh, as we said before. Uh, and um, William Anderson, one of the things we promised people at the beginning of the show is that although Christine Woodside had uh, a story about being brusquely rebuffed by one of the uh, wi- one of the wilder kind of homestead facilities uh, when she approaches a 17-year-old, that you would have a story of being rebuked even more sharply uh, by the daughter, Rose Wilder Lane. So explain what happened when you were 13 years old and dared to approach this family. Well, Colin, as a matter of fact, Rose Wilder Lane did visit Las Vegas. She thought it was pretty amazing. (laughs) I was going to say, I thought she had. I put my foot in it there. I had uh, read the books in elementary school, and my family was very good about getting me to all the sites of the books on our various summer vacations. And when I went to the Laura Ingalls Wilder home in Mansfield, Missouri, the curators there uh, took an interest in me, and uh, we had a long, long uh, rapport and, and friendship that grew over the years. And they knew that I was doing some research at that very early time when very few people were approaching the books in that way. And they said to me, 
after my first visit, would you write us a little pamphlet with all the dates and the names and the places and any other material that you've turned up? Because our visitors want something to take away when they come here, which will give them some historical information. So very much like a research paper, as a junior high kid, I wrote a little booklet called The Story of the Ingalls Family. And it's still available in many, many different reincarnations. And I had corresponded with Rose Wilder Lane uh, before that. And when it came time for me to um, finish this project, I sent her a copy of the manuscript. And I mentioned that when the Ingalls family first moved to Dakota Territory, 1879, they spent one winter uh, near the town site of DeSmet, and in the book By the Shores of Silver Lake, it is almost like a Swiss family Robinson story of one family living alone and surviving alone, but that was at the cusp of the Dakota land boom. And by Christmas time, 1879, two friends of theirs were there from Iowa. There was a bachelor nearby living that was boarding with the Ingalls family. There were other settlers within a radius of 10, 12 miles. But Wilder's book says that they had no neighbors, the nearest settlement 60 miles away. And... My statement was that the Ingalls family settled in with a few early settlers as neighbors, which is historical truth. And Rose took great exception to that line in my small manuscript. And she wrote me back very fiercely, and she said that, um, I object to your statement that my mother was a liar. And... I thought that was quite off-putting when I got this letter back from Rose, and she explained that if you will read my mother's book, they had no neighbors. And she really made it very clear that I was to change that, which, no problem. That did make it in accord with the published book, but the recent publication of Pioneer Girl, the autobiography, for instance, uh, states that there were other people around. Of course, they were very isolated that winter. No town, no railroad, and so on. But there were some early homesteaders there. I don't want to get too bogged down in this because we only have about f- five minutes left in the whole show. So, um, Christine, one of the things that um, I-, I want to spend a little bit of time here on the Danbury era, and this is when Rose, uh, the daughter of Lara, is really getting more and more ramped up in her involvement in conservative and libertarian causes uh, and um one thing that happens in a way that strikes me, at least in your book, is maybe not even entirely fair to Rose, is she gets a visit to this by a state trooper because of something kind of ferociously anti-FDR she's written, right? Yeah, she sent a postcard to a radio host who had invited people to comment uh, about uh, basically uh, social programs. And she compared them to uh, Hitler and and German programs. So she was investigated by the FBI. And, you know, Bill was alluding to this a second ago that during this period, Rose was really fierce. You know, she just there was never any gray area for her. It was always black or white. And so she wrote a whole thing about the 
the trooper showing up on her lawn. I'm sure that she exaggerated the story, but she wrote a pamphlet about it called What Is This? The Gestapo. And in the pamphlet, she describes herself sort of standing up from digging dandelions and saying, I pay your salary to the trooper who's sort of startled. And, um, you know, essentially she she's saying I have been censored. Her, her postcard that she mailed uh, um, that got investigated said something like, you know, if you say to German school children, you know, this is good, it's just like, I, you know, the Hitler era, something. I, mm. I I can't remember exactly what it was, but I do talk about it in my book. Yeah. And uh, the, the postcard never reach Samuel Grafton, so she claimed that she'd been silenced and, and um, you know, she had been, actually. Um, but, but for her, Danbury, when she got to Danbury, she was so against the New Deal, and, and um, Bill has written about this, too, that she, she basically ended her writing career um, as the 40s went on because she hated Roosevelt so much. She didn't want to have an income because she didn't want to pay taxes and be part of Social Security. So she, she began this pitched battle with the government, and she became a homesteader. She grew, she grew vegetables. She got some young woman to help her. And she got, she got in with people like Isabel Patterson, and, and Anne Rand was an acquaintance, and the guy named Don Levine, who ha, um, a former European, who, who was writing an, a, a magazine, anti-communist magazine. So she was really way getting pretty angry there. And Bill, with only about two and a half minutes left, uh, this, we have a huge story to tell here. Uh, another one of her acquaintances is this young man, Roger Lee McBride, uh, who winds up being her heir and the guy who carries a lot of her libertarian message forward, right? Even gets involved with the Koch brothers? Absolutely. She met Roger McBride when she was living in Danbury. He was a Exeter student. Uh, they corresponded and he would come down to visit her and sit around the fireplace and listen to her stories of her colorful life and be infused with her conservative libertarian beliefs, which he espoused later on, actually ran for president in 1976 as a libertarian candidate using the profuse royalties of the Little House in the Prairie TV show to launched that campaign, and he became her heir and the last living close link with this Ingalls Wilder family, which essentially are extinct now. Was one of the Koch brothers his running mate that year? I can't remember. No. No, no. no that... in 1980, 1980. Uh, David Koch ran for vice president, yeah. so four years after Roger ran. And, you know, we've got about one minute left. Um, uh, so, Bill Anderson, really, really quickly, I mean, there's so much about everything that we've talked about here today that probably would be disturbing to uh, Rose that, that we know it all. Why didn't she just burn all the stuff that, that told secrets she didn't want told? A great mystery because the attic in her house in Danbury contained her journals, her letters, her correspondence with her mother. The whole story that scholars have used to unravel this very intense collaboration was left in her home at the time of her death in 1968. And being so secretive about it, I can't for the life of me understand why she let that uh, be preserved. But thank heavens for history, she did. Right. We have to stop there. Uh, so many thanks, especially to Betsy Kaplan for putting this together. And then to the wonderful guests, Christine Woodside, uh, Wendy McClure, William Anderson, all of them authors of books about this remarkable legacy of Little House on the Prairie. Public broadcasting needs to compete with Little House on the Prairie. What have you got? Little House on the Prairie Home Companion. No. This old Little House on the Prairie. No. Desperate Little Housewives. 
of the New Jersey Prairie Shore. Sold.